You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that every time your heart beats, fluid squishes through your brain and actually jiggles your brain. And we didn't really understand that. A new twist on magnetic resonance imaging, aka MRI, has illuminated those brain pulsations and ripples. Their movement's so subtle, no one had noticed them using all the imaging that we have today. And they discovered that abnormal brain motion could signal problems like aneurysms or traumatic brain injuries or concussions, something that I've dealt with and a lot of guests on the show have dealt with. And surprisingly, about 90% of people who go through the 40 years of Zen neurofeedback training program show signs of subtle brain injuries in their electrical signaling that we, we look at on day one, which is amazing. So we're all these high performers out there who actually fell down when we were two and got a little brain injury. It's fascinating. But these scientists honed an existing method called amplified MRI, where they stitched together multiple images taken at precise times of your heartbeat. They used an algorithm that exaggerates those tiny movements. This actually happened between Stanford University and Stevens Institute of Technology in Hoboken, New Jersey, and the University of Auckland in New Zealand. So these cross-globe people worked together and figured out how to make a movie of the brain's rhythmic twisting and writhing as blood and cerebral spinal fluid move in and move out. And that new way to see how the brain moves is probably going to help scientists spot brain disorders or just lowering of performance way before we would any other way, which is kind of cool. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body. Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave. For a seven-day free trial. Today's guest is Ryan Cummins. And Ryan's had an amazing path of working with influential people, talking with Nobel Prize winners, uh, lots of them actually, major video productions that culminated in a new understanding of what he could do to allow all of us to have these life-changing, amazing, once-in-a-lifetime experiences and support massive charity efforts at the same time. 
this is something that's disruptive to the whole space of helping people. And that's why I wanted to have him on, both because he's done some incredible things he's going to talk about, but also because disruption is something that's been wired into my brain since, I think, since I was born. I've looked at disrupting technology, the internet disrupted phone companies, and, and this my whole career in Silicon Valley was around disruption. And Bulletproof is around disrupting big food so that we can actually go to the store and buy food that makes us feel good and supports the planet and supports our biology versus buying stuff that tastes good and makes you feel like crap, which is the current state of affairs. So we can, we can break that and make it better. And what I think is happening with what uh, Ryan's doing along with his partner, Matt, at Omaze is breaking charitable giving so that people can help in a way where they get something phenomenal potentially, but they also are creating more good than they would have before. So Ryan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dave. It's a pleasure to be on. Now, you've, you've had this amazing path before you started Amaze, and I want to walk our listeners through some of that because it's it's because I, I know you, and I know that it led to your mindset and your process for creating Omaze. You actually filmed 120 Nobel Prize and Fields Medal winners, MacArthur Genius Grant recipients, Pulitzer Prize winners, and people like that as a way of just forming your mindset. And you did some other stuff around Live Earth, which was the largest concert ever thrown. Uh, in seven cities all in the same day and and some other big things like that. What I want to know, first of all, is what made you go from talking with lots of interesting people and throwing big concerts and, and doing things like that into the world of charitable giving? Like, What was the spark that made you do that? Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, it's funny because hindsight's always twenty twenty, and you can sort of plot that path out. But oftentimes when you're on the path... Uh, you're just looking for the next step. But I think it I think it began because Matt, you mentioned my co-founder, Matt and I were friends at Stanford. And the thing that brought us together in that friendship was really a deep passion for storytelling. And so that brought us down to LA when we both graduated. And we began working on a number of different cause content, big campaigns, big global campaigns. So as you mentioned, I was the first director on a thing called Live Earth, uh, largest concert ever thrown. Matt had a chance to work as an early producer on Girl Rising. It was a documentary about educating girls in the developing world, funded by Intel and Oprah and narrated by Meryl Streep. Uh, I went off and did that interview series you mentioned where I got to film a lot of these world's brightest minds. And then we both came back together to executive produce Decade of Difference, which was this uh, you know globally televised event. It was a concert with we got to film Bono and Jay-Z and Matt Damon, Sean Penn, you name it, just uh, all these big folks. And the purpose of my rattling those off is that with every single one of these campaigns that we were working on, Matt and I saw that we were creating a tremendous amount of awareness, but we were not necessarily creating a commensurate amount of impact. And, you know, when we took a step back and we really took a a survey of the landscape of cause content, we saw that this was something that's fairly endemic to the space. You know, a lot of people put on these big conferences and concerts and to-dos and they pull fans in, but converting those fans into donors that are passionate about the cause and emotionally attached and want to stick around was a much bigger feat. And we knew that we wanted to stay in this space of storytelling around impact at a global scale. We didn't have the model. Uh, so we both went back to business school and we've spent two years, you know, as 
creatives looking to, you know, we, we joke that we went into business school. Most people come in at a 50 and leave at a 70. And we came in at like a, a two or a three and just getting to 40 would be a big accomplishment. And while we were there, we went to a charity gala. They were honoring Magic Johnson for the Boys and Girls Club of America. And Matt and I are huge, lifelong Magic Johnson fans. You know, I grew up 45 minutes down the street from Michigan State where he played ball and Matt grew up in Laguna. So he's a huge Lakers fan. I think his parents let him stay home uh, the day after the Lakers lost because he you know, cried so hard. <laughs> I don't know if he wants me to share that story, but he gets a laugh out of it every time. And, uh, and so we're sitting at this charity auction and we're the guys that got invited by someone else. So we're at a table in the back and they start auctioning off the chance to hang out with Magic, sit courtside at a Lakers game and just have this incredible experience of a lifetime. And being the fans that we are, the auction kicks off and it's 50 bucks and we both throw our hands up and it's 100 and then it's 250, then it's 500. And we're sitting there thinking like, you know, we're on loans in business school. That's, you know, half our month's rent at this point in time. And then it's a thousand and we sort of sheepishly drop our hands and it goes 5,000, 10,000. It clears for 15K. And, you know, Dave, to throw some salt on the wound, we knew the guy who bought it for 15K and he's a Clippers fan. He wasn't even a Magic Johnson fan. So we're sitting there thinking, all right. Here's this incredible once in a lifetime experience. Here's a room of 200 high net worth individuals and the guy that bought it didn't even care. So as we were driving home that night, we started thinking, you know, how much more money and how much more awareness could they have raised if for $10, anybody around the world online had the chance to participate in that once in a lifetime experience. And that was where the idea was born. Uh, let me walk uh, listeners through what a charity gala auction actually is and how it works. And I know this because some of my friends uh, run those, uh, like the Unstoppable Foundation. And I actually uh, donated enough to build four schools for girls in Africa in villages where girls aren't allowed to get education this year. That's awesome. That's awesome. But the way these are set up is you generally spend about $1,000 to get a chair. And uh, wealthier people will buy a whole table, like so maybe 10 seats, and then they'll invite some friends or you'll, you'll spend $1,000 for a ticket to sit there. And the reason you spend the money is you know that it's going to cover the cost of this event. Maybe it's at the Beverly Hilton in, in Beverly Hills. It, it's going to be swanky. It's you know, where they hold the, the Oscars uh, or something like that. So it, it's, it's a chance to have a, a really you know, dress up nice and kind of have a fancy like, like a prom for wealthy people, right? But then the other reason you spend the money is you're in a room with a bunch of other people who are pretty successful and you get to make new friends and hang out with cool people and you're all dressed up and there's photographers and it's a, it's a cool experience, right? But then you sit there and there's an auctioneer on stage and they're auctioning off these things and pretty soon there's people raising their hands and say, yeah, I'll spend $50,000 on that. And if you're a, a normal person uh, and certainly the vast majority of my career, other than when I, I made that $6 million when I was 26, I lost when I was 28, you go to one of these things, like that's a down payment on a house. Uh, that's yeah. my next car. And it's just not possible. So it takes that that idea of raising money uh, from going to a special event and then spending uh, you know, a year's salary for a lot of people on something. It's something that is by definition limited to the number of people who can afford that, which means that while it's a great experience, if you can afford it, it's also you need to be rolling in money to do this. Uh, and and that is that means it's small, and and then you also don't necessarily know where the money is going to go. Although if if you go to the right events, you at least know there's there's quality people running them. 
so so paint that picture as the current state of affairs. And so you went to one of these and you're like, this isn't for me. I'm lucky someone gave me a, a ticket to get into this thing, but it's it's not my game, but I still want to do these things. I still want to help. It, it, is that a good picture? 100%, 100%. And, and we represent, you know, the vast majority of people out there who want to have dream experiences and live their best life, but can't participate in these things. And so when we launched Omaze, it was predicated on that idea of democratizing these dream experiences and rewards to the masses. And so what we've done is we've taken things like the chance to be in Star Wars or to go wine tasting with Jennifer Lawrence or, you know, ride on a tank and crush things with Arnold Schwarzenegger, these like, you know, totally wacky experiences. And we've democratized them to the masses. And what we've seen is that now, unlike the traditional auction model where they make five, 10, 15,000 bucks, maybe 50,000 if you're in a loaded room, these are making hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars for their respective charities. But what they're also doing is it's a win-win because the talent gets to get you know 10 to 40 times X raise over what they traditionally would. The nonprofits get to continue doing what they should be doing, which is boots on the ground work. And the donor, guys like you know you before you were 26 and made all that money or me when I'm broken in business school, suddenly get a chance to participate in these once-in-a-lifetime experiences. And that's really the beauty of the, the entire model. The, the other thing that attracted me to Amaze and had me want to get you on the show is that when I've donated to causes, you say, oh, you know, you, you watch something on TV and, or someone hits you up in a mall and sort of guilts you into spending 10 bucks. And, and you say, okay, well, I, I guess I should do it. It'd be a good thing. But, but you do it. And um, it isn't necessarily a, a positive thing. And, and, and giving is supposed to feel good because you genuinely know you're helping another person. So there's a selfish part of giving uh, for everyone. Anytime you help another person, it's selfish. Right? Of course. It, it's selfish because it, it really feels good to help other people. I, I certainly enjoy doing it. And you can help them financially. You can help them by carrying their groceries. It, it doesn't really matter. You help another person, it makes you happy. right? And acknowledging that's cool. But if the way you're getting happiness from a traditional mass donor thing is you're getting happy because they've created guilt and then you remove the guilt. Uh, that isn't really happiness. It's just kind of bringing you back up to normal. And what you're doing with Amaze is different. Walk me through what why people donate with Amaze versus uh, uh, an older model of, of mass giving. Uh, sure. Well, for first, first of all, individual giving in the U.S. is a $330 billion market. And only about 7% of that is online. So right now you, you see how archaic philanthropy really still is. So you know what Matt and I were talking about is we have this background in storytelling, but what if we put that background in storytelling on top of a layer of you know, traditional e-commerce and technology? Could that really open the floodgates? In just a couple years, we've now ended up raising over $100 million for charity at you know, $10 a pop. And that's from donors from 180 countries around the world. So there really is an appetite globally for people to be able to participate in these types of experiences. But when you ask about, you know, like a specific experience, you know, let me tell you the story of like Robert Downey Jr. So here's a guy, he's Iron Man, he's Tony Stark. And he is a very, very philanthropic person, really wants to, uh, as you'll find with a lot of these celebrities, Celebrities are some of the most creative people in the world. They're the most passionate people and passionate people care about changing the world. And so when we first met with Robert Downey Jr., he wanted to help build a new hospice center for kids. 
So it's a charity, remarkable charity called Julius House. And what they do is they provide essentially a refuge for families who here are these kids who've been dealt a terrible hand, but then there are their parents who sometimes only get two, three hours of sleep a night. Or they're siblings of these kids who have no idea at four, five, six years old what, why their parents aren't paying much attention to them and what's going on with their other siblings. So it really is a tough hand that the, these families are dealt. And what these hospice centers do is they give those parents an opportunity to have a dignified night of sleep. They give the siblings a chance to meet other siblings. And they give these kids who've, who really have, you know, have it the hardest a chance to really play and enjoy life. And so Robert came along and Julius House wanted to build a brand new hospice center. They said it was going to cost $1.75 million dollars. And that would usually take them two years. So he offers up the chance to have the best night of your life with Robert Downey Jr. You fly in a helicopter over the Hollywood Boulevard sign. You go indoor skydiving. You then get suited up in a tux or a gown, have a caviar toast with RDJ himself, and then ride in his motorcade to the premiere of Avengers before hanging out with him at the after party. You know, so like just a That's pretty epic. nutty, <laughs> nutty, epic experience. And in five weeks, he ended up raising $2.2 million dollars. They've already uh, launched the brand new hospice center that is now serving thousands of additional families. So that's sort of how it all comes together. And, that, and that's, you know, donors around the world at 10, 10 bucks a pop coming to support this for this chance to support an icon that they believe in, but a really remarkable cause at the same time. So now what you're doing is instead of guilting people saying, think of all the suffering, you think of all the, the horrible things and you kind of suppress your energy. Now for only $10, you can fix everything, right? And, and you could do that. Or you could say, look, this is a tough thing. Let's have compassion for these people. So why don't you donate $10? And you might have a chance for this, this amazing hope. So it, it, it feels more uplifting to me. And I think that's why Robert Downey Jr. was able to raise more. And he could have gone and shot another movie, made, made the money himself and donated it, or he could have asked a lot of his wealthy friends to do it at a gala. But the idea is now a lot more people are engaged with that important hospice, uh, hospice activity. And, and anyone who's dealt with someone dying in their family knows how important a hospice is. And they're always underfunded. So now, oh wait, I'm doing something good and maybe I'm gonna have this thing. Maybe I can hope that I get this thing. It feels like it's a fair transaction. And like earlier, you said something that kind of pissed me off. You said, well, how do we convert fans into donors? And it's like, ah, no one wants to be converted. Uh -huh. Like people want to help. Right. Yeah. And, and this feels like a really clean model. And, and that's, uh, that's something that I haven't seen done before. And it's actually something I'm pretty excited about. Yeah. Uh, it used to be the case, you know, I was heard sort of the traditional model was you go from employee to employer to investor to philanthropist. And in this new age that we live in, everybody can be a philanthropist. Uh, everybody right now can support a cause that they want through micro donations, through, uh, through engagement, through sharing. Um, and we just basically wanted to be able to provide. And what you nailed was the, the empowerment and the levity. You know, something Matt and I would always say to each other is that laughter is the shortest distance between two people. And, you know, when we grew up in the 80s and 90s, we saw a lot of commercials that were flies on the face guilting you into donating. But really, in the, in the world that we live in now, people want to be inspired. They want to feel empowered and they want to live their best lives while empowering others to live their own. And that's really the model that we've been most focused on is how do we inject fun and happiness and empowerment into a model that offers these once in a lifetime experiences. Tell me one more of these completely unbelievable things uh, that 
uh, that you've actually offered up for people, uh, just because some of these are fascinating. Actually, tell me your two favorites. Yeah, sure. Well, I'll, I'll start by saying it was a hard road. You know, this was not a success right out of the gates, and we had a lot of a lot of stumbling blocks early on, a lot of learning. One of my favorite experiences, which did not raise a lot of money in our first year, was the chance to play Battleship against Four Star Admiral Mullen. And an incredible <laughs> experience, awesome. uh, but it turns out that Admiral Mullen doesn't have a massive social media following, uh, rightfully so. That that a seven year old won that experience and beat him twice, <laughs> by the way, which is amazing. But as we refined the model and learned how to add the storytelling to it, you know, we went from five hundred dollar raises, twenty thousand to fifty thousand on up. Um, we did one that was the chance to ride in a Winnebago with Brian Cranston and Aaron Paul, the two stars of Breaking Bad. So you got to get no dressed up in hazmat suits and white ride in a Winnebago to the season finale of Breaking Bad with them. And that ended uh. up raising $1.7 million for Kind Campaign, which is a remarkable anti-bullying campaign started by Aaron Paul's wife. Man, I... I, I Revolver Magazine once called me the Heisenberg of coffee, <laughs> which was... It was the single nicest thing anyone's ever said about me, uh, as far as I can tell. Uh, and it turns out that some of the people behind Breaking Bad are also bulletproof. So I have one of the one of three hundred signed prints of the diagram of the lab underneath the laundromat hanging downstairs. At well Plaza. done. It's just one of my prized possessions. So yeah, I would have I would have totally uh, done that. And since we're talking about Breaking Bad stuff. Um, Let's see. I think it was it was Ryan uh, Cranston. Uh, uh, I'm just going to tell a story. Go we're, for it. We're, this is about storytelling, anyway. So early in the start of Bulletproof, a lot of people don't know this. People think I've been some sort of gazillionaire for my whole life. No, I lost all of my money when I was 28. So I had this taste of wealth, and then I worked and I had mortgage payments and rent and all that stuff, uh, like almost everyone. And at the beginning of Bulletproof, I self funded this thing, so I was. Uh, scraping the bottom of the barrel. And I helped a professional poker player go bulletproof uh, to the point he had never read a book. And when he got his brain working, all of a sudden he could just read. And he said, Dave, one of my buddies just bought you a ticket to a celebrity uh, charity event, but it's a poker tournament. So I show up and this is uh, Matt Damon's charity. Uh, and, and I'm like, I have no idea what to expect. I haven't been to a charity event since I was 25 and they've changed a little bit. And it's uh, at a very, very successful Hollywood person's house. And there's all these famous people. They're all just playing poker. And I'm wearing my yellow glasses, uh, you know, the, the true darks. So they think that I'm a professional poker player. And I ended up winning. I was the, the chip leader at the end of the first round, not because of great poker skills, because I'm like, it's not my money. And it's all to raise for charity anyway. So if you win or lose, it, there's no difference. So I have this huge stack of chips, of chips and I end up at the final table. Mm -hmm. Uh, where uh, Ryan was, and or Brian yeah. was, and uh, uh, there's also Larry David and Tim Tebow and, and all these people, and I'm just gonna admit it, I didn't recognize Tim Tebow, so he's sitting next to me, and and everyone thinks I'm gonna win because I'm clearly a professional poker player because they have no idea who I am, and I have yellow glasses, which means I must. So anyway, I'm sitting there, and I'm about to say to Tim, "Hey, man." you look like you work out a lot. Like, what's, what's your deal? Like, like I want to get back. And then someone calls him Tebow and I'm like, Oh, thank God. Someone told me who he was. Yeah. Uh, and I, t and I took Larry David's money and he acted just like you'd expect Larry David to act. But that was the first time 
that I met Brian and uh, I saw him again years later at, at one of Oprah's things. But it, it was so funny because this event raised many millions of dollars. But these are people who just didn't mind spending 25 grand to buy into the, the poker tournament. I did not have 25 grand in the bank when I went to this thing. And my, my company did, but I did not personally even have that much money. There was no way I could have had that experience. Uh, except for the kindness of a friend who I'd helped and without expecting anything in return. That's awesome. Uh, right. And so when, when I think about that as, as the prototypical charity thing, it's not accessible to us, like to, to almost anyone. You have to know the right people and you have to have lots of money and be willing to, to spend it on a good cause. Uh, and uh, that was an epic experience in and of itself, but it would have been 10 times more epic what you're saying now for 10 bucks, if you're the person who wins it, to write in a Winnebago with yeah. those guys for my favorite show ever. So it, it's that disparity where you just, where these peak experiences ought to be more democratic than they are now. Yeah. And what's crazy, we did, we actually did a chance to go to one of those poker tournaments with Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. So you had a chance yeah, to do ben a, a, double, too, of course. a double date with the two of them, Night on oh the Town. God. And they were just hilarious. And incredible supporters. You know, Matt supports water.org and Ben yeah, supports. Yeah, that's what this was for. It was for water.org, right. actually. Yeah. yeah, and Ben does the Eastern Congo Initiative. So, yeah, that's it's awesome. I'm glad you had that experience. We did another one. It was the chance to hang out on set with Amelia Clark on the final season of Game of Thrones. Wow. I feel like you might have liked that one. Um, we did one that was amazing. So, George Clooney, we did an experience with George Clooney. And the first one we did was the chance to be his date on a red carpet premiere. And then he got married to a mall. So after that, we were doing a follow-up experience, and obviously we couldn't do the date anymore. So George offered to sit across from one winner and for one minute stare into their eyes and compliment them. And that, and that was like one of our biggest hits. So, so these are things that are just not even on the radar for almost anyone. And I, I got to say, Snoop Dogg-based health retreat. Tell me what the deal was with that one. Yeah, well, that was all uh, all in good fun and in the name of a good cause. So we partner uh, annually with Bono to support Red, which is really focused on ending the transmission of HIV from mother to child. And so what Bono will do every year is pull together a series of his different friends, and they'll offer up really incredible experiences. And so that George, the George Clooney one was one of those. We had a Julia Roberts one. We had a Channing Tatum Neil Patrick Harris. But for that one, when Snoop got on board, so for two years in a row, we ended up doing a Jimmy Kimmel telethon. So it was almost like a QVC style telethon where the celebrities would come on the show around the holidays and like sort of jokingly pitch their experiences with Omaze. And Snoop was offering the chance to do a health retreat with Snoop in Colorado. Uh, this is before some of the California laws passed. So, you know, we like to have fun with these things. And, and he was a great partner and doing it for a worthy cause. So, so you've now raised $100 million for charity, which is something very few people can say that they've done. Uh, you being amazed, you know, the, the nonprofit, it's you and, and Matt and just yeah. the whole team there. And what I want to know, though, is in order to get to the level where you can pull off something like this, because this is something a lot of people might have said, oh, I could have this idea, but they would probably not have done all of the things right in the right order, or at least right enough in order to get there. I know that some of your experience came from those discussions you had with all these Nobel Prize winners and all that. And I want to dig into some of the biggest lessons you learned uh, from talking with this amazing group. 
Sure. Um, you up for that? Yeah, yeah, I'm totally game. This is this is your podcast, Dave. I'm I'm just a I'm just a passenger. All right, good deal here. So you talked to Dr. Eric Kandel on designing memories, and that helped you think about what you're doing at Amaze. What did you get when you interviewed that that Nobel Prize winner? Oh man, yeah. So Dr. Kandel is one of the most remarkable people I've ever had the pleasure of meeting in my life. Um, so his story, I think I'll I'll share it very briefly, but it, it it outlines so much of how our brains create memories. So he was seven years old when living in Vienna, Austria, when the Nazis invaded. And over the next two years, you know, his family lost everything. And he found himself on a freighter coming across the uh, coming across the ocean over to New York, over to Brooklyn with his brother, not even with his parents. So they're, you know, 11 and 12 on this freighter making their way by themselves. Because of that experience, his memory of that experience, he wanted to understand the roots of brutality. And that led him to study the id and the superego and Freud. And then someone, when he was at Harvard, said, look, if you really want to understand the brain and how our brains work, then you got to study it one cell at a time. Forget about all this psychoanalysis and really dig into the medicine. Yep. And so he went to med school, started studying uh, the brain one cell at a time, and basically, over the course of his work, realized that we as human beings have two different types of experiences. On the one end of the spectrum are habituated experiences, which means, you know, as you and I uh, are sitting talking in a restaurant, there may be phones going off or people, ch- people chattering in the background, and that has neither a rewarding effect nor a punitive effect. So we habituate to it and we ignore it. On the other end of the spectrum are sensitized experiences. So if I asked you, you know, where were you the first time you became a man or where were you, uh, you know, on 9-11, you would remember those events because those are highly sensitized events. And the difference between those two things is that with habituated experiences, those form your short-term memories. With uh, sensitized experiences, those form your long-term memories. And so Dr. Kandel's work essentially uncovered that difference between short-term and long-term memory. And what I took from that was just this idea that we have the opportunity to actively design our lives. You know, you are the culmination of your memories. And so the more that any individual focuses on what are the memories that they're actively creating on a daily basis through how sensitized we are, how, how we create the most exciting experiences possible, then at the end of the day, when you're looking in the mirror and you're you know, having a conversation with that voice in your head, that voice is the culmination of all of those memories. And so if you want that to be the richest, most positive, productive, awesome voice possible, then you can take an active role in, in creating those memories. And that was really the lessons that I took from him. And he's just been a remarkable human being. He's still, still working, by the way. He's 88 years old and still focused on memory. And now he's focused on memory loss uh, out of Columbia University. So just a remarkable guy. All right. That's a pretty amazing thing to pick up early in your career. How old were you when you interviewed him? I was 26. Seven at the time. I was 27. And when I was about 21, I uh, just arrived in LA. And I wrote down that before I finished that decade, I wanted to sit down with as many of the world's brightest thinkers as I possibly could. And so after finishing Live Earth, uh, I had a little bit of a platform there. And so I went out and just started interviewing some folks, you know, Noam Chomsky and Eric Kandel and a guy named John Hennessy who now is the exec chairman of Alphabet, uh, which oversees Google, but he was at the time the president of Stanford. 
And I just had a series of six questions that I was asking each of them that I was trying to figure out for myself. But then I cut a deal with them where if they liked my interview and they liked the questions, they would introduce me to the next three people. So I went from three to nine, 27, and, and very quickly ended up having a couple hundred people that I'd filled my brain with. Uh, that is a, a powerful way to uh, accelerate uh, your your growth uh, and your career uh, in your mid-20s. And this is something that I didn't get uh, when I was uh, around that age. I grew up thinking that that no one wanted to help, believe hmm. it or not. And I don't know, I don't know where I got that, but I, I sort of like the world's a mean place. And in fact, I can tell you where I got that now. I I got that because I was I was born with the umbilical cord around my neck, uh, and so, you, you so I came out fighting. I came into the world thinking, man, it's a it's a bad place here, and I was wrong, and I reprogrammed all that. But it meant that I had a, almost a combative way of getting ahead, and it worked. You know, you, you, I made six million bucks when I was twenty six. I'm not I'm not complaining, and even losing it was a huge lesson. Um, but I lost it in part because that that mindset that people aren't here to help, and I would I was too arrogant to learn from people. Mm. And I look at my contemporaries who are my age who did learn from other people. Uh, you get uh, Mark Andreessen uh, wrote the first web browser. I was the first guy to sell anything over the internet. Like he's a, a multi billionaire, and I'm not. Like, <laughs> I, it's because he was smart enough to go out and learn from people who do stuff, and you were smart enough to do that, and I wasn't, and I'm just catching up now. So. What made you smart enough or open enough or interested enough to do that in your mid-20s when, frankly, a lot of people don't get there until a little bit later in life? So you were ahead of the curve. What What in your life made you ahead of the curve to go, just want to go do this? Um, you know, I appreciate that question, but I, I feel like I honestly can't take that much credit uh, because when I first started doing that, those series of interviews, I think I thought I was a lot brighter than I found out that I was. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I started and I, you know, like I said, I had sort of these larger six philosophical questions, but what happened, I listened to the first 10 interviews that I did. And thank God I listened to those first 10 before I continued on because I saw this pattern emerge. And that was that every single time one of these, you know, MacArthur Genius Grant recipients or Nobel Prize winners was about to just give me a complete nugget of gold wisdom. I would interrupt them with what I thought they were trying to say and completely forego the opportunity to learn. And that idea really completely changed me in that moment. I went from being someone who sort of, I probably, not necessarily intentionally, but uh, passively spoke with a little bit of an air of righteousness, a little bit of an air of knowing and realized in that moment that I was, by carrying that as a mindset, I was preventing myself from actually truly knowing just by listening to people and, and gaining their knowledge. You don't gain a whole lot of knowledge talking, uh, was what I learned. And so I, I shifted at that moment to questions, um, which is something you do so well on these interviews. Uh, I, got a, I had an opportunity to sit down with a guy named Mac Maharaj, who spent 13 years in prison with Nelson Mandela. They were adjacent cellmates, just breaking stones in a quarry. And I just happenstance ran into him while interviewing another guy named Gilberto Gil down in Brazil. And uh, I didn't even know who Mac was when I approached him for an interview. He was just talking about culture and globalization at this conference. And I thought it was really interesting. And I approached him and lo and behold, lo and behold I find out he's you know Mandela's lifelong editor. And we're sitting there in our interview, and he said this thing to me, which has always stuck with me, which was that 
the most important thing for a society to do is not to focus on the answers, but to collectively come together around what are the single most important questions at that point in time. Because if as a group you can come together around the most important questions, then a myriad of answers will ultimately reveal themselves. And that was a critical moment in my life where I started shifting from thinking I had the answers to really focusing on the real value in life is in the questions and in, and in pulling people together around what are the biggest, most important questions and then allowing answers to come forward. And so I've learned a lot more. So your question was, you know, what, what led me to do that? There was probably something, even though I didn't admit it to myself, that there was probably a bone in my body that was telling me I don't know as much as I should. Mm. And there are a lot more people out in the world that do. And if I don't take this opportunity right now to listen, and the way that I learn is through storytelling. And so uh, I set out to just listen to the stories of all these people and listen to their life stories. And through what they shared, I gained a lot of these lessons. If you don't mind me sharing the single lesson I gained from all of them. Yeah. So at the end of this, yeah. I did this for a year and it was a pretty emotional experience because um, to listen to all these people go as deep as they were. And, you know, the last 20 guys and girls that I interviewed were all neuroscientists. And so I went deep into rewiring the brain and neuroplasticity and and just the sheer magnitude of learning sort of what we're capable of doing as human beings paired with all this knowledge that these folks were giving me was a bit overwhelming because I was just trying to process it all. It's like drinking, you know, drinking water from a fire hose. And the thing that I finally realized about all of them was that the thing that made them great wasn't that it wasn't necessarily what they were doing themselves. It was that through their work, they were empowering untold millions more to be better in their own lives. And that's when I also had sort of the shift that I think I spent most of my 20s probably focused on how I can make myself great. You know, you go to Hollywood and there are a lot of folks in Hollywood that have, you know, get, get their name. They see their name up in, the, up in the marquee. And I was probably focused way too much on that. And what I realized is that if one can sort of dedicate one's life to trying to empower others to be great, then who knows whether or not I'm going to be. But at least I stand a much better chance. And I don't stand a chance if I'm only focused on myself. And so that was sort of a critical change. And I think that's probably part of the reason that Matt and I came together to, to, to launch Omaze was that we, we both sort of had these shifts around how do we empower as many other people out there to be as great as they can. It's something that on one hand could sound really self-serving. Like, hey, look at me. I'm helping as many people as I can. Uh, and I have found that, that both from entrepreneurs and people working in charity – and even some of the the really happy and successful uh, billionaires uh, that I know now, they are all doing that, whether or not they say they're doing that. Like it's what motivates them. Uh, and I got to say, it's a lot easier to do anything when you realize it has the potential to help a lot of other people. And for anyone listening, if you're thinking about starting a company or doing something and the first thing in your mind is think of how much money I'm going to make. You're probably doing it wrong. Yeah. Uh, you you actually do measure it is is what impact is it going to have, and the money is a side effect of that. Uh, and I I did not get that uh, earlier in my life, but uh, that's that's what I do too. And you know I'm perfectly happy uh, you know, knowing that my work is helping a lot of people. That's one of the reasons I do the show. 
but I don't really care if they remember my name when I'm dead. It, it's that's not what it's about. It, it's it's about I'm enjoying the heck out of this, and it, it gets me up every morning. Uh, and Can I ask you, Dave? Like, what was what was that insight when you started Bulletproof? What was that insight of improving other people's lives? You know, I. At the time I started Bulletproof about eight or so years ago, it was I started blogging before I really started making products or anything. I I realized I spent three hundred thousand dollars in fifteen years working on making my brain work better, fixing all of my biology, and that I'd gone from being obese and arthritic and just you know, having all sorts of, of problems, including massive brain fog in the middle of my career, uh, that. Uh, I fixed all that and then I went beyond to the point that I, I got an MBA from Wharton when I was working full time and uh, just just realized one day I'm I'm doing this and, and it's awesome and you're not supposed to be able to do it. And then I thought if someone had just told me all this stuff that I've learned from all these experts uh, in, working in a, the nonprofit world, interviewing experts in anti-aging and all. If someone had just told me this when I was 20, it would have saved me about $250,000 and it would have saved me years of suffering and struggle. So I wrote my blog for myself when I was 20 mm-hmm. saying, if someone had just told me this stuff and I literally I said five people are going to read this blog maybe. And if so, it'll completely change their lives. Uh, and I'm already a VP at a big company with stock options. Like I, I don't need to start a company here. That wasn't the intent. Um, but uh, when I, I realized that maybe more than five people are reading this, I uh, I just kept doing it and realized, wow, I'm a lot happier doing this. And this has been my passion for 20 years. And I put all this energy into it. But it was always my passion project, my nonprofit work instead of my my next stage of my career. And it was, frankly, kind of scary to leave a 20-year tech career. Yeah. Once you've been out of tech for two years, you're not going back. Yeah. Uh, and so I went off to be, you know, a, a coffee human performance guy. And, it, but it, it was that I'm happier knowing that I'm preventing someone else from going through all the crap I went through. That was what it was. And now that it's, it's running at some, some percentage of the scale is capable of, uh, man, every time I walk through an airport and someone says, Dave, you know, you don't know me, but I'm 40 pounds lighter now than I was six months ago. And my brain works and, you know, good God, thank you. I, I'm not struggling anymore. I'm like, yes, that's why. That's why I do this. Uh, uh, and whether or not they ever bought any of, of the bulletproof coffee or not, it, it's not relevant. It, it's that did the knowledge help them? So that, that's what that's my mindset anyway. Can I ask you one more question? So uh, sure. every time, so I have the I have the the brain octane and I have the bars and I love I it. Do, okay. But my question is this: so you know, so Mike Mersnick is another guy that I interviewed. He's a remarkable neuroscientist at UCSF and focuses on rewiring the brain, on neuroplasticity and rewiring the brain. And what I learned from him was that, uh, you know, he really stresses that we as human beings are basically a byproduct of our genetic predisposition, which sets the basic infrastructure, the basic architecture of, of how we think and what we can do. And then obviously our environmental upbringing and what we do for continued learning over the course of our life. And I look at your products, and you tell me if I'm right or wrong, but when I look at a lot of the products and, and any products out, that are out there for really improving health and improving brain function as, as those, those supplements that really improve environmental upbringing, right, uh, how we continue learning. And I'm curious, like, how much does do the bars and the brain octane, like, 
how much can they improve above and beyond my genetic predisposition? You know, you said like suddenly you could read books a lot faster. You could do those things. When I'm taking these things, I can never tell. I love them because I, I, they make my day easier and they give me that feeling in that sense. But I never know how I can actually measure that. I'm curious how I can. Here's how the genetic predisposition actually works. And actually, it, it's time for me to interview uh, Mike uh, about this because the old school of genetics just looked at nuclear DNA in okay. your cells. And you can look at nuclear DNA as the building plans for the walls and floor and ceiling of your house. Mm-hmm. What's it going to look like? And there's, there's additions or subtractions you can make. But there's another set of DNA that is missing from that whole conversation. And that's your mitochondrial DNA. And this is different DNA. It comes from only your mom. And your mitochondrial DNA is the wiring diagram for that. So you have to look at both. And guess what the gateway to epigenetics is? This idea that the environment programs your genes? Your mitochondria, they're the frontline sensors of the environment around you. They're the ones who interpret what's happening, decide whether to make chemicals or whether to make electricity, how much electricity to make. And that is what controls the switch to turn your genes on or off. So what you're doing with Brain Octane, with all the other mitochondrial enhancing supplements like Keto Prime uh, or Unfair Advantage or Forbos or MitoSweet, all these things, you can tell that I kind of have a theme around mitochondria. My last book, (laughs) Uh New York Times science book about them. Um, It's because when you can provide more power to your environmental sensing and power generation network, A, you're more aware of the environment around you, and B, you have more energy. And then that energy goes back and turns the genes on or off in your nuclear DNA more accurately, right? So you do a better job of responding to the environment around you. And if you're a biohacker, you change the environment around you so that you respond, your body responds in the way you want it to respond. And what's happening here is 48% of people under age 40 have early onset uh, mitochondrial insufficiency. In other words, they take a unit of food and a unit of air and they don't make a unit of energy. Uh, which they're supposed to, they make a fraction of a unit of energy. Mm-hmm. And everyone over age 40 has that. So my supposition to you would, would be that unless your mitochondria are working really, really well, and you have a lot of them, that they are going to be making less energy, which is going to make you less able to express your genetic potential, as Mike Mersnick would put it. Got it. Uh, and that said, they're probably, and then you can use epigenetics to turn on the switches you have. And if you simply don't have something in your nuclear DNA, so you can't turn it on or turn it off, as long as you know what that is, and I have my full human genome sequence, now we can know what that is, then you know your strengths and your weaknesses, and you can exercise in a way that supports your nuclear DNA. But if you don't have the mitochondria to do that, it, it sucks. So what we're doing is we're focusing on that sensing network and power generation network first, because that allows you to fully express your genetic potential and to even avoid the pitfalls that are there. Long answer, but yeah. What the the other the other question I have is so when I listen to you know your podcast or uh, or anything that's on brain enhancement, you know, despite the fact that I like to talk about that I, that I interviewed all these folks, like there's still a very low ceiling for what my knowledge is of the actual brain. I've not gone anywhere near as deep as as you or these guys have. What? Wait, hold on a second here. You're the guy who got an actual human brain in fifth grade for science <laughs> how, project. How, do you, how did you learn that? Oh, it's on the website, I, I think. I do my research. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. That was. Can you believe that they gave a fifth grader a slice of a, a human brain to take home? It was literally sitting in the fridge, and my parents got home and looked at it, and they were like, "What is that?" 
And I was like, ah, it's a, it's a human brain. Um, so another, <laughs> another story. Yeah. For, for folks that are, for folks that I consider myself, you know, a casual learner in this space, what's the most simple way? Cause Nick Foles was on and I listened to him talk about taking in all these different supplements and trying to, and, and measuring sort of his results without, without learning the full encyclopedia of knowledge of all of these different aspects of the brain, is there a simple primer for as I, as I test and as I experiment with different, um, different supplements or, or, or different enhancers to, to very clearly measure other than just emotional or feeling like this is working, this is not working? Well, the, the gold standard is actually EEG neurofeedback. Okay. Or you can do some unusual tests in university labs that look at oxygen utilization to see if your mitochondria work. And uh, that said, most of us aren't going to be doing clinical grade 24 channel stuff like we, like we do at 40 Years of Zen. Uh, so there are a bunch of different apps out there on the iPhone that look at short-term executive function, things like finger tap test speed, like how fast can you tap, uh, how is your working memory, and these are measures of short-term executive function. And in fact, in the Bulletproof Diet, we ran a, a study with an open source uh, version of those things that was actually IRB, Institutional Review Board, approved. And we found statistically significant improvements in six of seven measures of executive function from Bulletproof coffee, from the actual mold-free beans with butter. We didn't even have brain octane in it for that test compared to street-grade coffee uh, with or without butter. So it turns out removing toxins from coffee seems to make a difference, a statistically significant difference uh, in that study, uh, which which is cool. So you, you can get short-term. It takes about six to 10 minutes, depending on, on the set of tests. I wish I could recommend a specific app. I don't have one of those that I use regularly right oh, now. Oh, that's helpful. Thank you. And speaking of that, you just, you just gave me an idea um, that just popped into mind. Uh, I don't know if, uh, if, if it would be a useful way to raise money for the nonprofits you're working with, with Omaze, but I could, uh, I could do a 40 years of Zen experience. I love uh, it. Maybe like with, with a phone call with me ahead of time or something. And I, I regularly donate these $15,000 five day all intensive brain upgrade experiences at these celebrity gala things uh, or galas, uh, because, um, it's one of those things that that really changes someone's entire brain. But if 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 I qualify as a mini celebrity uh, in uh, compared to these these amazing people you work with, I'd love to support Amaze by letting people spend ten bucks for a chance to go to Forty Years of Zen. So it'd be a one on one Forty Years of Zen with Dave Asprey, and then and then you get to. Well, I'm not going to spend the whole five days there with them. I haven't <laughs> okay. had five days there. I'd, I'd actually love to do that. But what I would do is you know, you're getting two neuroscientists and facilitators in a two and a half million dollar facility. And I would spend one on one time with the person ahead of time. I love it. Uh, um, and just basically and ahead of time, an hour after an hour where we get to actually um, talk about, OK, what do you want to hack in your brain and what, you know, what were your results and what's your follow-up plan? So that sort of custom thing I don't normally do anymore. I, I love doing it, but I just don't have time because I'm, I'm focusing on Bulletproof and the show and my next book. And all. Awesome. What would the, and what would the charity be? We have to figure it out. Something brain related. Um, I'd, I'd probably talk with Maria Shriver about Alzheimer's. Great. Um, a lot of the stuff that enhances mitochondrial function directly impacts uh, Alzheimer's disease. In fact, I, I believe that through my work at Bulletproof that 
we've already reduced the incidence of Alzheimer's in the country in a meaningful way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I can't say you know, which, which products and studies do what because uh, unfortunately food companies aren't allowed to speak the truth in the US, uh, but I know what I'm doing. I <laughs> so I like to support Alzheimer's uh, and autism research. So I, I, would, I'll, I would talk to Maria about supporting some of her efforts on, on Alzheimer's. So let's, let's do it. So right. 40 Years of Zen with Dave Asprey Sweet. to support Maria Shriver's Alzheimer's Foundation. Just found a way to give away another 40 Years of Zen. That's... <laughs> Omaze.com backslash Dave. All right. Uh, we'll do that. That Just made that up. But I'm, I'm glad you asked me how to measure your brain because that's what made me think about it. Oh, thank you for that. Now, I want to ask you one more question, Ryan. Okay. If someone came to you tomorrow and said, I want to perform better at everything I do as a human being. What are your three most important pieces of advice? Uh, what would you tell them? And, and your answer is kind of special because you interviewed a hundred plus Nobel Prize winner, et cetera, et cetera. And you've interacted with all these other people with Omaze. And, and also, so maybe you've learned from a few other people when you offer your three pieces of wisdom. What are they? Oh, that's, that's a great question. Um, so the first thing, the first thing I would say is uh, define your higher purpose. So this this goes for both your company or for yourself. So when Matt and I launched Omaze, we spent you know six months before we did really focused on the higher purpose, and we came up with this concept of we serve world changers. And for myself personally, I've developed a, a higher purpose, which is to empower as many people as possible to be the best expression of themselves. And what that higher purpose does is it really gives a North Star for for all behaviors and actions. Uh, You can tell very quickly whether or not the decisions you're making in life fall under that higher purpose or fall out of it. And and paired with that, you know, we did an experience with uh, Star Wars. It was a chance to be in Star Wars. And J.J. Abrams said something that I think sort of connects to this higher purpose. So J.J. Abrams and, and his wife, Katie McGrath, are two of the most brilliant people I've ever had the opportunity to sit with. And he said this thing where he said, you know, for a story to be truly great, the protagonist has to have something that they want to have happen with every fiber of their being and a very clear tragedy that will result if it doesn't. And what I really liked about that is if you pull back, you know, I've extrapolated that we are, we are essentially the protagonists of our own lives. And so one of the ways that we create the best story possible is by establishing what we want to have happen with every fiber of our being and our our own lives and the tragedies that will result if it doesn't. And that can all fall under that banner of higher purpose. So for me, the first one would be define your higher purpose. Uh, For a second one, so I'd say this, um, I've learned over the last couple of years that you can't help others unless... I myself am in my own peak condition if I'm looking out for my health first. Uh, I've learned that because my my wife actually um, is one of the most remarkable, strongest people I've ever known, total warrior and my best friend. Uh, but she has POTS, which is um, a disease that affects a lot of people around the world. Including Tori Foles, Nick Foles' wife. We just wrote a blog post about POTS. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm thank, thankful that you did. I, I read that and it's important information to get out there. Um, but what that basically means is, you know, in, in her case, and I've gotten comfortable sharing this because she's comfortable with it, but she's had a level nine migraine headache 24 hours a day for the last five years. And as a result of that, we've really started focusing on a lot of different modalities of healing, you know, Western, Eastern, 
homeopathic, naturopathic, and I've actually even gone as far as, as a lot of meditative modalities. And one of the things that I've learned over that time is that I have to focus on my own health if I'm going to be able to be there for her. And one of the ways that I've done that now is I'm actually about to go do it in uh, four days from now. Once a year, I now do a four-day fast where I completely unplug. Uh, literally, it's I go up on a mountainside um, away from the world and completely unplug for four days and just fast in isolation. And it's one of the most important things that I've learned to do for myself as of recent to disconnect to find the space and the time to reset my brain and to be able to have the energy that I need to bring, to bring my best self uh, back to the world. And I know that sounds extreme and I wouldn't recommend it for everybody, but it works for me. It is. That's a beautiful thing. I, I fasted for four days uh, in a cave outside Sedona uh, led by a shaman once. Oh, good and for you. I've got an idea for you that uh, uh, I don't normally do this in the middle of people answering the question, but uh, I went uh, fishing in Alaska with a group of friends, and my buddy uh, Randy, who's a Mormon bishop, told me that uh, he fasts uh, once a month for a day, mm-hmm. and so do all of the other people in his um, in his. I think it's called a congregation, but what, whatever the what, whatever the group of people uh, who, who goes to his church, but they all fast, and then they take the money they would have spent on food and they donate it to someone else. Ah, that's a great which idea. Which is a really cool idea. And I hadn't heard of that idea, but the idea is, oh, if you're fasting, and there's a lot of people listening who actually do uh, a once a, you know, once a week, 24-hour fast. What if you took the money you would have spent on food and gave it to someone even just you know on the street? I think that's fascinating. So think about that next time you do a four-day fast. I'm going to do it this time. You, yeah, do it. Thank, All right. thank you. Thank you for recommending that. You're welcome. I want to hear your number three answer, but since you're into charity causes and all, that's such an easy, pain, painless way to do it. I, I was impressed. Anyway, yeah. Keep going. And then the last one. So I think these are all broad, but they are literally the the sort of the things that have helped me the most. The last one I'd say is practice gratitude daily. And and I'd go a little bit further than that. Something that I do is I do a practice called wins wisdom gratitude, where every morning for 30 minutes, I wake up and I spend 10 minutes focused on wins from yesterday, 10 minutes focused on reading some piece of wisdom, and 10 minutes focused on gratitude. And for that last piece of gratitude, I wrote down a list of the people that have had the greatest impact in my life. And I carry that list with me every single day. And what I'll do is uh, every day, I'll, I'll choose one or two people from that list and just text them a quick note of appreciation. And it's more than I love you, but it'll be something along the lines of, you know, I text my brother the other day, you know, thank you for showing me a model of what it means to, to really show up for your kids at a young age as a, as a new father, because I'm my wife to her, you know, on the flip side and the joys in our life where we've got a 10 week old right now. And she is just totally rising to the occasion as a remarkable mother. But what my brother shown me about, you know, how to show up as a father, in addition to what my own father taught me has just been remarkable. So that idea of practicing gratitude daily it connects me with the people in my life in a way that I'm not just sort of casually thinking about them or occasionally, but I'm really intentional about thinking about folks that have really impacted my life, but setting a mindset of gratitude so that it, it just, I think it, re, I think it uh, releases friction, un, unloosens the knots and allows me to sort of walk through life a little bit easier every single day. And so that'd be the last thing that I'd recommend. Um, and so I'll end by saying, I guess I'm grateful for you, Dave, for for being able to give 
myself and and Matt and Omaze this platform to uh, to or to this platform to talk about Omaze and for taking the time to talk about some of the people that I've had the the opportunity to interview. So thank you. Well, thanks, Ryan. And uh, there's a, a bonus uh, piece of, of content here. I've talked to a lot of people with POTS, this postural orthostatic uh, hypotension syndrome. Basically, you stand up or you just have uh, you stand up or at other times you don't have enough blood flow in the brain. And it's a brain dysfunction thing. The most common triggering event I've been able to find, and I've had this my, myself. I grew up with, with this. I, literally, I thought it was normal to see stars every time I stood up getting out of a car because I always had low blood pressure wow. in my head, and I, I don't have that anymore. I fixed it. But uh, the most common trigger is environmental mold exposure. So look at mold as a trigger and at treating mold and see if her symptoms go way down. That's, I, I think, a, a path to doing it. And mitochondrial sufficiency, fixing the mitochondrial harm that mold causes is a major hint for mold, or for, sorry, for POTS, and that some of that's in the blog post on the blog on it. So yeah. read that twice, and if you want to, ping me afterwards uh, for some hacks there. Um, I'm happy to help. I, I look forward to, I will definitely ping you and I look forward to anything that I can learn. So thank you so much. Thank you for this opportunity. I really appreciate it. You got it. If you guys are interested in learning more and maybe donating $10 to help a good cause and potentially have an amazing experience, omaze.com, like amaze, but with an O, O-M-A-Z-E.com. And if you want, and if you want your 40 years of Zen, omaze.com backslash Dave. Omaze.com backslash Dave. We'll do a 40 years of Zen thing. Beautiful. Thanks, everyone. Thanks so much, Dave. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.